what is IoT? It's just remotely mm -hmm. measuring something. It's remotely knowing the state of something. People yeah. overthink IoT all the time, and that's how they get freaked out. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics, and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now, your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? Welcome to episode 63. Today's show is all about the Internet of Things, but we'll also be covering entrepreneurship and submarines, of all things. Reason why is we're talking to Rob Tiffany. Now, if you're in the manufacturing space or if you have an IoT-focused role, you've probably come across Rob before. He's frequent on Twitter, he's frequent on LinkedIn, and quite frankly, he is an expert when it comes to practical applications of the Internet of Things. He's been doing it for almost his whole career, I should say his post-Navy career, which is a perfect opportunity to tell you the three things you can expect from today's show. Rob was actually on a submarine during his time in the Navy, and we talk about a bunch of lessons he learned, not only from a leadership standpoint, but also how it's helped him in his software and Internet of Things career. Second, we have to talk about the Internet of Things in this episode. It's Rob Tiffany, for goodness sake. We get into some pretty cool IoT applications, ranging from trains to candy bars, so definitely stick with us through this part of the conversation. And at the very end, we talk about entrepreneurship and what Rob is doing right now in his role at Ericsson. A lot of ground to cover today, number of good resources that get mentioned in our interview. You can find all those over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 63 to see the show notes for this episode. And two more things I want to mention before we get this episode rolling. First, I just want to thank all of you that have either left rating and reviews on iTunes or maybe more prominently people that send me private messages on LinkedIn after episodes are released. You've shared with me some great stories on ways the podcast has helped impact your career, your jobs, what you're currently doing now in the manufacturing space, and that means a lot. And I hope the show continues to do that, whether it's something you're sharing publicly or just shooting a message over to me. So if the show has has impacted you in any way. I just wanted to thank all of you that have shared your stories with me, and I hope to keep hearing more as we continue to crank out more episodes. If you fall in that boat of someone that has been impacted by the show, I'd love to invite you over to the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community as well. Quite frankly, anyone that's listening would love to have you in there. It is a group of nearly 500 manufacturing leaders. This group lives on LinkedIn. That's where our LinkedIn group is. It's a private group. If you connect with me on LinkedIn, I'll let you in, and you can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community to make that happen. And with that, we've got a long episode for you, so let's not waste any more time. I want to get you introduced to Rob Tiffany. Okay, folks, our guest today, his name might as well be synonymous with the Internet of Things. We've got Rob Tiffany, VP of IoT and Entrepreneurship at Ericsson. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. It's good to be here. Yeah, I've uh, I've been coming across your name for a long time between Twitter, LinkedIn, finally with the onset of Clubhouse. I think we got to chat oh, yeah. a little bit, you know, earlier, midway through this year, whenever that was. So it's been good to, to start seeing you a bit more around uh, around the industry, but even better to finally have you on the show as well, because like I said, your big name in the Internet of Things space. And that's a large part of what we want to talk about today. But before we get there, it's manufacturing yeah. happy hour. So you're based up in Seattle. Let's set the table real quick. Quick. If we were having this conversation over a drink, where would we be doing it? Well, you know, I don't think the place is open anymore. There was a place down by the football stadium called FX McCrory's, um, which is a really big place, gorgeous bar. Um, and before Seahawks games, it, it would always be packed. And it's just like the go-to place before the games. Um, you know, little tidbit, good friend of mine that I worked with forever at Microsoft and at Hitachi, he, was, he, he used to be a bouncer there years ago, and he actually got the chance to throw a guy through a plate glass window there. So that makes it even more legit. No way. That's like a bouncer's dream, right? Like it's something oh, yeah. on TV. You never think it happens in real life. <laughs> 
absolutely absolutely so yeah it makes it even better so that's well, it's all good <laughs> yeah i can't i can't think of a better way to kick off this interview then let's say we're so let's say we're hanging out drinking a beer before a seahawks game and before a bouncer's thrown someone through the window and yeah. uh Let's. Uh, I want you to answer this as if as if you're having a drink with someone. You know, right. what should the Internet of Things mean to a manufacturer, right? Because it's a word that's thrown around a lot. What should it really mean to someone in manufacturing? I think they should not overthink it. Actually, I think it's a lot of what they're already doing. A lot of manufacturers have been instrumenting equipment for decades, and you know they've got SCADA systems, and they've been pulling that data in, you know, um, you know, it's a lot of that. Um, in fact, these days I'd say most IOT systems look like just modern versions of the old stuff that people did a long time ago in manufacturing. Manufacturing is probably the best place to see the growth of just knowing the health and performance of a piece of equipment, what's going right, what's going wrong, that kind of thing, and being able to get data from it to, to derive insights and, you know, make better decisions, uh, improve the efficiency of your operations, you know, all that usual stuff, you know, do we have to take a shot if I say predictive maintenance? <laughs> We've done back in, back in episode seven, we did a live episode, which was called the digital transformation drinking game. So yeah, we had a list makes, of buzzwords. <laughs> if anyone that makes them, sense. It was, People, uh, it was a, Go, yeah, go, go for it. <laughs> no, people people still struggle to try to get that whole predictive thing to actually work um, on, on equipment. Everything is so unique, actually. Um, but yeah, you know, it's stuff they're already doing, but it's also about pulling in data from other sources. You know, it almost makes me think back to when we used to talk about API mashups and stuff like that. There's all kinds of information that you can all pull together to derive better insights from your 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 equipment, from your processes, you know. And as I always tell people in IoT and manufacturing, when you're trying to be successful, follow the money. Um, <laughs> I love it. I, I love it. it. Yeah. You know what? You know, I, I've been in IoT business for so long and, you know, I've seen some, there's so many IoT platform players, Edge, Core, whatever, and most of them struggle mightily to be successful. Mm -hmm. They have great mm -hmm. technology, but they really struggle. And so I always tell them, well, you know what? If you're talking to the plant manager who's making really expensive cars in Germany and they tell you, you know, if some subsystem in an industrial robot goes down and then it has a cascading effect to that whole robot and it fails and then the assembly line fails, I'm out 300,000 euros per hour. Mm -hmm. um, and also everybody does lean manufacturing the Toyota way. And so guess what mm -hmm. that does? It just ripple effect disrupts my supply chain, my distributors, my customers, all that's bad. Those are the people who need IOT and, uh, but more importantly, just the really great advanced analytics uh, to, to stay ahead of those kind of problems. Um, well, Rob, you're, you're like a poster child for manufacturing happy hour right now, because within the first five minutes, you said, hey, don't overcomplicate it. That's the whole goal of the show. We want to simplify these things the way you would if you were having a drink at a bar. And you told a great drinking story right at the, the kickoff as well. So you that's are, what it's all about. You, yeah, you're, you're on fire right now. And I'm excited to get more <laughs> into the IoT side of things as we get rolling. But you've got a pretty cool story because I love doing my research before these interviews. And the first thing that pops up when you search for podcasts that you've been on before is your experience in the Navy on, uh, on mm. the submarines. So yeah. I'd love to dive into that a little bit about first, because if I heard your story right, you were on, and, and correct me if I say this wrong, you were on like the yeoman track, right? And then you kind of veered off to, you got recruited into the submarine uh, side of uh, side of the Navy because there's this, extra layer of recruitment i think you described as that what yeah compelled you to go that route well you know even just back up just to the whole yeoman thing it was just a role i i really when i went in i wanted to be a fighter pilot and mm. this was during the gulf war way back when a million years ago a really short little skirmish actually and i wanted to just be like anybody else who wants to go do top gun right and so I was actually going to go through this program called NAVCAD. Uh, I'd had like okay. about 90, I had about 90 hours of my college done. So I had to go in as enlisted, mm -hmm. you, you know, you have to, your degree to go in as an officer, but I went in through this program. And so 
choosing a, a role, a, you know, to, a, a job to do was kind of like, okay, I just need to do something. I don't want to downplay mm -hmm. the importance of it. So, so yeah, I did the, the yeoman thing, but then yes, I'm, as you're going through, you know, you get out of boot camp and then you go to various schools to teach you about your job and what, you know, what all the stuff you're going to be doing. Right. Well, when I'm in, where was I? I was in Meridian, Mississippi at a Naval air station, mm -hmm. learning this stuff. And then there's always some guy who is the submarine coordinator at all these bases who's going to come give you the pitch like, hey, have you thought about, you know, Red October, baby, and being on subs? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, and, and to your point about what you mentioned about, you know, volunteering again, the Navy cannot make anybody be on a submarine. Um they can put you on any kind of ship, but submarines is just a different animal altogether. It doesn't work out for a lot of people. And so uh, anyway, long story short, I was like, yeah, I'm going to give that a try. And I'm still studying and I'm taking all these tests to do. I'm going to go be a fighter pilot. Uh, and so, yeah, so I did that. Had to go to the sub school up in Groton, Connecticut, New London, um, and went through all that stuff. And then, yeah, my, my first submarine was a SEAL team delivery vehicle. It's a spec ops boat. And so it's kind of like, you know, it's a submarine, but it's dotted line to, uh, you know, CENTCOM and, and Tampa, where all those, you know, special forces guys, all the SEALs. And so that that was our, that's what we did. Uh, and so I was the chauffeur. I spent most of my time driving okay. the submarine. And mm -hmm. so, uh, and so, yeah, you know, and so, yeah, I served with the different SEAL teams and went on all these fun missions and uh, yeah, it was it was pretty cool. It was it was cool stuff. And then later on, I tr after we decommissioned that submarine, I went on to a, a bigger Trident submarine, which is how I got to the Pacific Northwest, actually. And and I, I've got so a question knew? about that. Yeah, you you brought something up yeah. in that answer. And another line I heard you say in that podcast I was listening to, you said, "When the hatch closes, your life changes forever." And you mentioned that it kind of takes a certain type of person to go on a submarine. How does your life yeah. change when that hatch closes? I'm just curious. For I'm sure most people listening have never been on a submarine before. Right. There's a there's a feeling of finality almost when that hatch <laughs> closes and you're underway and you're just you're especially the very first time you ever do it. You've never had it in your life an experience like that before. You're in this giant steel tube with a whole bunch of guys and you can't get out and you got to go do your job and you 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 experience something you've never experienced before in your life you know mm -hmm. being out for 90 days underwater for instance or longer um and doing these missions and it's super dangerous to be on a submarine you know we're we're purposely making something sink mm -hmm. and hoping it all works out <laughs> um yeah. but yeah yeah you do you do have that finality um you know it's ironic too because We'd be back in port and you'd have all these really huge marine guys guarding the submarines and they've got some i forgot the name of the gun it's like a modified m16 that has a grenade launcher on the bottom okay and and these are the toughest looking guys obviously the seals i worked with they're the toughest guys sure, on the planet sure. but some of these guys are like there's no way i would get in that thing you got to be insane that's terrifying i'd be crying the whole time like a baby and just kind of rocking back and forth i'm like really okay yeah <laughs> Yeah, appearances yeah. aren't everything. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a mental thing. It really is. You know, it, it really is a mental thing. You have to go through all this test. You've got to go. You're spending a lot of time with different psychologists prior to being let into submarines because mm -hmm. um, they don't want you to freak out and mm -hmm. go nuts while you're way down deep out in the middle of the ocean because it's harder to do something about it. Right? You're kind of confined. Yeah. It's not like we mm -hmm. can say, "All right, let's get this guy off the ship" or or whatever. And so, uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty crazy. Um, well, I I don't know what it is about our industry, but I was I was trying to count it up before I got on onto this call today, where I'm like, I think I know at least three other people that were in the Navy in the like, that are in the automation and IoT world now that were in submarines as well. Yeah. Like, why is that such a common thing? <laughs> well, you know, there's certainly there's certainly lots of different jobs roles, right? Yeah. Uh, on a submarine, you know, um, you know, unlike a, like the army, for instance, there's a whole lot of people that are just like, I've got a gun and I'm going off to do my thing mm -hmm. on the submarine. I don't want to sound geeky, but it's, you know, you can sit there and go, Hey, we're on the starship enterprise here. 
And yeah. this guy's driving the sub, and here's a torpedo man who's going to worry about doing that. And you have sonarmen with their headphones on, like Jonesy. Mm -hmm. You've got, um, you know, missile techs, fire controls, you know, all kinds of people all have a job to do on the submarine because it's this huge multi-billion dollar piece of equipment. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy, but you have a lot of machinist mates and a whole lot of other folks who will learn whether it's around electrician type stuff or just heavy machinery. I mean, think about that submarine. It is a heavy piece of machinery and guess what? Things break and things have to get fixed. And so you, you definitely learn a lot of great skills just from spending time there that translates to the manufacturing world easily. Mm -hmm. um, a wide variety of skills. And, and gosh, I remember coming out with guys from, uh, gosh, what were they? Navigation, electrician, technicians, whatever. And <clears throat> Intel was showing up at our submarine base, the Trident base up across the bay from Seattle, recruiting Mm -hmm. guys coming right out of there. It's like, I need you. You're the right kind of person to come work in our fab plant, you know, that we're building uh, just, just stuff like that. So yeah, a lot of skills. I know a lot of times people feel like they struggle to figure out what skill did I learn in the military that can translate to the civilian world. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause that's tough for some people, depending on what you're doing. Um, what, what is your answer for that? I was going to ask you that. Yeah. You know what? I think it, it still is all on you. For sure. Okay. Um, there there are some jobs that really, you know, <clears throat> there's guys who work on helicopters and airplanes and they can go work for Delta Airlines or Boeing or something like that when they get out. Um, there's, you know, in my case, I took that time to teach myself how to be a software developer. Mm. And you know, I bought so many books. We'd pull into Pearl Harbor, we'd pull in all these places. And I, you know, so this is back in the 90s. And I was buying books on databases, programming languages, just all that kind of stuff. And so, because I had a computer uh, that I could work with and everything. And so, because you do have, you know, so on the submarine, you have an 18 hour day rather than 24 hours. Oh, wow. And so okay. and yeah. there's three, there's three watch sections. So I'm mm -hmm. going to do my job for six hours and then mm -hmm. I'm off for 12 and then they're serving meals every six hours, including one at midnight. And so you have this time off. You may have another job where you actually have to do things aside from your, because sometimes there's all kinds of jobs that you might do back on land or somewhere else, but on the submarine, it you have to do something else. For instance, like, so being a yeoman, I can't always do that kind of stuff underway on a submarine. So a lot of times those guys are, are driving subs or you can, you can get qualified uh, in other types of roles, uh, but anyway, the nature is it the nature of having like a limited number of people on the sub. Is that why that's that's the case? That's more it of a curiosity. It, it depends. It depends. The um, the particular role that I was in just wouldn't have enough to do. I think, um, and so uh, I I took that spare time to to teach myself what I would end up doing for a career, and so I was preparing myself. So, because uh, I saw lots of guys who they'd get off watch and they'd watch movies mm -hmm. or play video games, and that's great. You know what? You got to do what you got to do because it's it's a tough life out there. But when it came, you know, when it came time to, hey, am I going to get out or I'm going to reenlist or whatever? You know, a lot of times they would find themselves unprepared for some kind of equivalent civilian career or a job or something like that, and so a lot of them would stay in. Because uh, so anyway. I was kind of heads down. I do want to say, I said yeah. the word qualified. There's a really critical thing that happens on submarines that I think is super powerful. This notion of getting qualified in submarines. So you know how like a fighter pilot or a pilot of a commercial airline, you know how they have wings on their chest? Mm -hmm. All right. So on submarines, there's something like that. There's like, a, it looks kind of like wings, but they're like two dolphins. Anyway, your first year when you are deployed, onto your first submarine, you're going to spend your first year becoming what's called qualified in submarines, which means you have to learn every system on the sub and everybody else's job. And, and so you're spending all your time, you're learning how to operate the nuclear reactor, how to do the torpedoes, sonar, all this stuff, um, which if it makes sense in a dangerous thing, if we're, if it was wartime, you know, you've seen movies, bad things happen. <laughs> Yeah. And all of a yeah. sudden, it, it's like cross-training, right? Something, right. you know. That's what I if, was thinking. 
yeah. And so if the if the if the sonarman gets blown up or something like that, you got to be able to jump in and do that person's job. So that's what it is. Um, anyway, they push you through, and you have to learn every last system on the submarine, including lots of mechanical stuff and other things that maybe you didn't even care about. When you come through to the other side, you have to sit in front of a, a it's like a board. You're with a captain and XO and a bunch of other officers for like three or four hours getting grilled. Um, mm -hmm. But if you make it through, then they, it's really interesting because if you don't make it, I think you get another chance, but then you're washed out. It, it's mm -hmm. so much about trust because all your shipmates need to trust that you are at this high level. And so getting qualified in submarines is such a such a big deal. And I found it it's, to be more difficult than anything I experienced in college. It, it sounds like there's so much of this that's applicable to life after the Navy, once you yeah. come back to sea level. And I promise I'm bringing our conversation back to sea level <laughs> here in, in a second. I love the cross training that you bring up, um, the team environment that you've mentioned, a, a lot of things that just seem applicable to the manufacturing world. Absolutely. My, my last question before we're, we're back at sea level is, did you get the, the hunt for Red October experience that you were promised, or was that just sales FUD? Oh, we totally did. We totally okay. did. Okay. You know, we got to do emergency blows. Um, mm -hmm. We did lots of stuff I can't talk about, but it was it was sure. it was cool. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was it was all good. And also, also something that applies to the real world in your career afterwards is it gives you a level of perspective in life. Like, mm -hmm. for instance, when you become, you know, how there's things that are not in your comfort zone and then you do it and you're kind of freaked out, but then you incorporate it and it's like, okay, I got this. Mm -hmm. So when you're accustomed to being at battle stations and doing all kinds of crazy stuff or ha ha having your Trident submarine at launch depth and preparing to do the unthinkable to the whole planet, when you go into the real world at a real job, all the things that a lot of people freak out about or lose it over or can't handle seem like no big deal because yeah, you get a, no, yeah. none of the things you're going to do in any job anywhere are going to compare to the level of stress and the, and the, the, the gravity, the weight of what you're about to do. It, it just doesn't compare. And so it kind of, it, it, it gives you a calmness about things mm -hmm. when you're going into stressful situations in the normal business world. So it gives it was, you some perspective. Good. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. That uh, I, I like that. Now that now that we're that that's probably the last submarine question I've got for a while. I wouldn't be surprised if we we work our way back around to it or reference <laughs> it again. But when you left the Navy, it sounds like you had some nice experience from taking that time to learn software while you were down there. And I think one of the first things that stuck out about your career post Navy was you spent twelve years at Microsoft. And right. You were there for quite some time. Uh, we're, we're going to kind of quickly transition to the internet of things here because I'm curious, like you had, you had an internet of things title while you were there. Was that when you first started hearing that word? When did you start hearing some hubbub around the internet of things? So the reason that I'm such an old guy, IOT person forever is because the first job I took after I got out of the military in the mid nineties was with a startup called real time data. And we uh, did okay. IOT then they didn't mm -hmm. call it that. It was the early days of wireless data that was horribly expensive. We brought dumb vending machines to life. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, uh, you know, I was a kid learning from some of the smartest guys I've ever worked with in my whole career. Guys who had worked at Allied Signal that created the black box that goes into every aircraft. They were building firmware that goes into dumb vending machines. We had to build our own radio wireless modems. We were bouncing yeah. pack packets off of business radio towers. It was the hardest thing. And again, back to perspective, we had to invent every last thing required to remotely monitor and know the status of a vending machine. We created the whole wireless network. We created the mm. software on a PC, firmware, black boxes in the machine. It's all manual analog cables, how many quarters are getting put in there. And, and so it was really, really hard. Uh, yeah. But we, but we did it, and it was ma amazing. You know, it, initially it was like, how do you optimize, you know, inventory really mm -hmm. around vending machines? You know, around cool. yeah. And so it, it started there. And it, I, I know people often when they hear about IoT, they hear some stories about vending machines and other things like that. Um, but yeah, and so it started there, and it was as hard as it could possibly be. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then I spent, you know, rest of my career was, you know, obviously you kind of found yourself getting into the beginnings of the wireless industry. Um, but I'm a software guy. And so mm-hmm. the mobile revolution, when it started happening early on, and I mean, early on, like PDAs, like Palm and Windows Mobile, Windows Phone, uh, Pocket PCs, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, you know, and that's also when I started writing books and started speaking, you know, back then and, and did I was a startup junkie before Microsoft. Yeah. Uh, the last startup I did before joining Microsoft uh, was called Net Perceptor. It was a mobile device management company that we created. Okay. Um, kind of like Mobile Iron or AirWatch for your smartphone to manage that device. Mm-hmm. Which, the, which the takeaway I have from that when I think about IoT is like, it's a whole lot of the same stuff. Yeah. A, de- so a device, cut- <laughs> a device yeah, is sending you information. Early. Yeah, 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 totally. And so, and so at Microsoft, um, you know, spent half my time at Microsoft. The first half with, if you remember, Windows Mobile, Windows Phone. Uh, I don't know if you ever had one of those phones that had the tiles um, on it. I'm here. I can't. Re- I don't think I ever had that phone. To be honest, okay. if I'm thinking about it. this was old. This was old school, right? Oh yeah, you know. So we were doing smartphones. It used to be just us and BlackBerry. Um, sure. Early yeah, on, I, I had one it, of the latter. I did have yeah. one of the, the Blackberries, but that was short lived as well. Sure. And so, but there was this period of time, probably from 2000 to 2008 or nine, you know, when it started to tail off in the, after the iPhone launched and they, obviously they started getting a lot of traction and then Android came later after that. So half my time was doing that, building smartphones. Uh, and then the second half of my time there was building Azure, the Azure cloud. Okay. Um, and then specifically uh, Azure IoT. And so that was, that was a lot of fun to build a global scale IoT platform. I have, I have I want to go back to the vending machine example because the first yeah. thing that popped in my mind was tell me there was some feature that said hey the freaking Doritos are stuck again like did that did it have that type of feedback or was it more like you were saying quarters performance how that was going it was it was all right so a vending machine has spirals yeah. that rotate to mm-hmm. push your your Doritos out right so yep. we manually connected in with cabling and stuff to monitor the rotation of those. Oh, and we, okay. we had we had firmware uh, and a black box inside the machine that was capturing. And so in advance, you have to say, well, where did I start with? And so a person loading that vending machine, let's say for the first time, they'll go in and we gave them a little device that says, you know, because it's all these spirals, rows and columns, right? Mm-hmm. With each one's mm-hmm. got a number. And so you're like, maybe you have 10 items per per deal. So Doritos, white powdered donuts, Snickers, whatever, uh, and then the different you know drinks like Cokes and Pepsi and Sprite and all that kind of stuff. So you know what it is in there. You know how many mm-hmm. you're starting with in the inventory, and then it's and, and then you know there's no money in the machine, and then you close mm-hmm. it up, and then we start monitoring it. And so cool. every time spiral number seventeen moves, we know that someone just bought a Snickers. So part of this was just, it, this was route optimization, delivery. This is applicable today in lots of different yeah. spaces where people have to go bring inventory to fill up something or go visit mm-hmm. someplace to find out information. And so we optimized. We said, hey, here's where you actually need to go and what you need to bring. And more importantly, you don't have to go visit these machines because nothing's changed. Um, and then along the way, you discover people's preferences and you learn about things that you didn't plan on, like merchandising. And you go, oh, turns out people who are near these vending machines over in this building downtown really love Snickers. And mm-hmm. it's selling out all the time because yeah. you're getting real-time information and preferences in real time. And so it's like, well, let's double up and put two rows of Snickers or you know, two different things. And all of a sudden, the machine is now making you more money than it was before. It's already saving you money. And you know how much money it's made. You can do. You can predict the how, how much money that vending machine is going to make that week. Just stuff like that. No, it's a it's a perfect IoT example, and that that I think it's a good segue to a, a big question. Let's say it's like I don't know, twenty five minutes before kickoff at the, the Seahawks game. So we got we got some time left in our conversation, but this is this is maybe the crux of the conversation today. I was listening to one of your podcasts earlier, and you mentioned IoT is underperforming, and if you look at the Look at what the analysts said versus what is happening now. It's something like they thought there'd be 50 billion devices connected at this point. There's something like less than 10 billion connected right, right now. It's something like 20% of, of what they were expecting. So 
why is IoT underperforming, particularly in light of a great example that you just gave where it just made perfect sense, and this was years ago. Yeah. Well, as hard as it was then, and it's infinitely easier today, it's still just too complex. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people, a lot of analysts and companies, the last big mega wave in technology, Megatrend, was certainly the smartphone revolution and the apps, and that clearly just launched like a rocket you know, mm -hmm. and it was just unmistakable. So a lot of folks said, well, IOT is going to be the next thing that's going to be just like that. Uh, what they didn't count on is how many different skill sets and domain knowledge and things you had to know to put an IOT solution together. It couldn't just be somebody in their garage building an app for the iPhone. Mm -hmm. And so the, the knowledge of hardware, which is hard, embedded software, short range networks, edge computing, long-range networks, platforms, analytics, you, you know, outcomes, you could go on and on and on. It just requires a lot of different domain knowledge skills. And so it's hard to piece a lot of those people together, even though everybody and their dog says they're an expert at IoT. Um, and so that's part of the problem. That's a big headwind. And you, and you know, it, it's not, <coughs> it's not rocket science. You can, you, you hear that from customers, people all the time. Mm -hmm. It's too complex. It requires too many knowledge of just too many things to pull it off. So it takes longer. Um, you probably read the same stats. The IoT projects are typically, a, it's a project, a lot of times delivered by a consulting firm oftentimes. Even though a lot of IoT platforms are built thinking the customer is going to do it themselves, a lot of times it's a consulting gig. About 75 to 80% of these consulting gigs for IoT are failing yeah. at, the, at the proof of concept phase and they never make it to production. Uh, customers did IoT because they want to make money, save money, safety, whatever the use case is. But what they find out instead is, hey, I'm spending money and time on some guy or a whole bunch of people doing billable hours programming devices and configuring devices and configuring IoT platforms. And what I wanted was the, the outcome, the app, the analytics, the whatever. Um, I'm shutting the project down. And I hear about that too. And I hear about mm -hmm. uh, decision makers who greenlit IoT projects not surviving the project and getting fired because it's like mm. the, the their bosses are like, this is getting out of control. This is taking forever and we're pouring money down a hole and we're not even sure what the value is. So that's a problem. Uh, the other thing is security. Mm -hmm. And security is neck and neck in, in for, for first place of why IoT is not working out. People are getting hacked to death. Everybody can read headlines all these days. <laughs> it's yep. pretty ugly out there. Um, mm -hmm. And so it gives a decision maker pause. You may say, gosh, I really like the value of IoT, but I sure don't want to get my, I don't want to get fired because we get, because IoT is by definition, it's all compute and networking. We're exposing yeah. ourselves and building a large attack surface. And so, so yeah, there's a lot of worry around that kind of stuff. So, and, and that, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? We've heard of pilot purgatory before. A lot of people yep. get stuck there. And then security, I mean, I can't put an episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour out that's about cybersecurity and have it not get double the downloads of what a normal show yeah. does. So yeah. it's, it's certainly front of mind. Given all that, though, can you give me an example of what a successful IoT application that you've seen looks like in manufacturing? The vending machine example was great, but maybe something that's a bit more industrial. Yeah, a, a really cool industrial one. So when I was, yeah, you know, I got recruited out of Microsoft by Hitachi mm -hmm. uh, to, to go build their industrial IoT platform called Lumata. And so great experience, got to design and build that thing from scratch. Um, a cool scenario, you know, was, you know, Hitachi makes bullet trains uh, in Japan and throughout Asia. Uh, there was a, a great scenario though, uh, UK said, hey, all our intercity trains are really, really old and it's time to replace them. So we're going to put out the RFP and get bids from all the usual suspects who build trains. And there's not a lot of those folks, right? There's Alstom and Siemens and others in Europe who are kind of the home turf, right? Well, we built this Lumata IoT platform and analytics and we decided to take a bet, a big risk and say, we believe that we can know about enough about all the data coming in from all the 40,000 sensors on a Hitachi bullet train and do real-time high-speed analytics that we think we could do trains as a service. Mm. And so and so we 
went after that RFP and said, it's going to be like SaaS, like salesforce.com, except it's going to be trains. And so they'd never, no one expected a Japanese company to be bidding on that. And so we bid on it and we said, you're just going to pay, it's going to be a subscription and you're going to pay monthly and stuff like that. And no upfront cost to you, which is not everybody can do that, which I totally mm-hmm. get. Obviously you have mm-hmm. to be a large company that could build a bunch of expensive equipment on their dime. So needless to say, we won the bid because of Lumata. It, you know, I tell people a lot of times, that a lot of the great value in IoT is these new business models mm-hmm. uh, that you can mm-hmm. that you can bring to bear. Uh, guess what? Countries, smart cities, mm-hmm. school districts, they don't have any money. Everybody's strapped for cash these days. If you ever wonder why a lot of these projects also aren't happening, it's because it's not like there's a lot sure. of money laying around. So when mm-hmm. we said, hey, UK, you, we, we got this. And so they were loving that. And then we, after they agreed to it, we sweetened the deal. And we said, you know what? We're going to build a factory north of London and, hmm. and hire British workers uh, to help build the trains. And so we did that and got pictures of Sir Richard Branson on his Virgin line nice. that he's got. And, and it worked. And so we have Lumata running on trains uh, wow. talking over LTE and stuff like that. And uh, it made all the difference. It's how we won a multi, multi, multi tens of billions of dollar deal. Yeah. So they're, that, so they're paying for trains as a service now, right? The yeah. same way you pay for software as a service. That is so cool. Yeah. I mean, there's everything as a service now, machine as yeah. a service. That's uh that is not an example I expected you to give, but man, this, uh, this is painting a pretty cool picture. Yeah. It's so, pretty, pretty uh, cool. Yeah. Well, I, I guess, one more personal question then around IOT. Why do you love it so much? You built your career around it. What's uh, what's the thing about it that has gotten you to stick with it? Yeah, you think I'd kind of run out of gas by now, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, any anything remotely close to automation can be exhausting after a while. I think we yeah. all, we've all felt that at some point. So, but now you're you're powering through. What's uh, what keeps you going? No, it's a good question. Um, you know, it's problem solving, I guess. Um, after all these years, I still write code. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so I'll, I'll come up with the ideas, pitch the ideas, design them, create. I created the prototype for Lamada, actually. I mean, obviously, we ultimately had a whole engineering team build it. But, uh, you know, and I'm doing getting to do some of that stuff now at Ericsson as well. Um, but yeah, you, you love tackling the big problems. You're and, and then you look at the like what we just discussed, this complexity issue, the security issue, and go, what could I do to solve that? And I know yeah. a lot of folks are like, yeah, well, what can one person do? And I totally get it. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. It's like it's just it's a challenge to, to take on, you know. There's a lot of there's there's a lot of things that need help throughout our world, whether it's manufacturing, agriculture, sustainability for the planet, stuff like that. What is IoT? It's just remotely mm-hmm. measuring something. It's remotely knowing the state of something. People yeah. overthink IoT all the time, and that's how they get freaked out. It, it's, remotely, it, yeah, no, remotely knowing the state of something. I'm glad you you dropped that quote on us. I'll I'll definitely be featuring that a bit later on. Yeah, so I think simplifies it really well. And you know, what can one person do? Like, I don't know. I feel like going back to your submarine experience. Like, the, it takes a team to do this, right? Like, yeah, I was talking to someone earlier where someone was asking, "It's like, what do you see holding up these IoT or ITOT convergence projects?" And my first answer was, "It's like." Well, you need someone that has enough of a vision that can say, look, we need IT and OT in the room at the same time versus having someone from OT lead it up and then blame IT half the time or vice versa. Yeah, you know, that's where totally. I, that's at least in, in my experience, that's where I've seen a lot of uh, you're absolutely of right. Hiccups come into play. So and, and those OT guys don't like IT guys. <laughs> like the, the rivalry runs deep, but yes, um, when you can overcome it, it seems like that's where the success is. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm glad you started bringing up Ericsson as well, because that's where, as, as we get to the end of our interview, I want to talk about what you're up to now. And you are, um, you're, you're a VP as well as an IoT entrepreneur at Ericsson. And I feel like we throw the term entrepreneur around quite a bit, but you're part of, as I understand, a venture-backed startup within that organization. So tell us how yeah. entrepreneurship works or should work from your experience. 
Yeah. So my day job at Ericsson is I'm a VP and I'm head of IoT strategy. And I work mm -hmm. on our IoT team, which is based in Stockholm, which has made things a little difficult for me during COVID, as you can imagine. Normally, I'd be flying to Europe every month. Sure. Um, but inside Ericsson, there's an organization called Ericsson One that, you know, you and I'm sure there's things like this in lots of other large companies where, you know, from the CEO down, it's like, hey, we got a lot of smart engineers working here. Mm -hmm. It'd be great to harness some of their ideas and see if we can create new product lines um, you know, cause you never, you know, you've always got to be thinking of the next thing, you know, you mm -hmm. don't want to be blockbuster video. You need to come up with new product lines and stuff mm -hmm. and, and not rest on your laurels. So they built this organization and yeah, I'd say it's a combination of a, like a, a, a VC firm, you, you get funding internally, but it's also kind of like a Y combinator. It's an accelerator. And so there's a, a funnel, uh, this thing called idea drop, where you can put in your, you know, you basically get a paragraph to write about what your idea is and how it can help and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's people looking at those things all the time. And if they like it, there's all these coaches, all these people in this Ericsson One organization, and they start working with you. And so basically your first stage to get through, you've got this ideation of this product. Mm -hmm. um, and then the first step, the stage to go through is something called Angel's Room. And so basically you've got your pitch deck, you've got, you're talking about what it is. And there's, uh, there's three hubs around the world. There's one in Silicon Valley in Santa Clara. There's one in Beijing covering Asia. And then there's one in Stockholm covering Europe, uh, EMEA. And so, uh, so you basically pitch the leadership there first to go through Angel's Room. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you can get funding. And the funding is, it's not like a ton of money, sure. uh, but, the, but the funding is to go validate the idea. Maybe talk to some potential customers. Does this, does this idea make sense? Uh, build a prototype. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the next stage is now you refine it. You got a bigger pitch, and now the next stage is Dragon's Den, and mm -hmm. so it's just like if you've ever watched Shark Tank on yep. TV, it's just like that. And so now it's a bunch of executives um, who are the judges, and you're pitching this idea to get through there to get a whole lot more money. Well, I made it through that, so my idea is based on the problems I described to you. I need to, how do I reduce or eliminate complexity? How do I increase time to value for IoT projects, just generically speaking? Mm -hmm. How do I provide a new level of security uh, that we don't have today for IoT? Um, and add, add some flexibility and more transparency and data. So this thing, it's the, the, the code name is Thunderstruck. And so okay. it's Project Thunderstruck, just like the ACDC song. And so... We've been building my my little band of people working with me, our little team. We've been building this Thunderstruck platform, and so really quickly, you want to get to value faster. So on the device side, typically you're writing code to someone an IoT platform's SDK, like could be Azure IoT or ThingWorks or whatever. And once you've done that, you're locked into that platform for life. Um, I was, you know, you hear people talking about cloud lock-in these days. Or mm -hmm. having a multi-cloud strategy. And so I, a lot of people say, gosh, I, I really screwed up. I don't want to be locked into this platform or this cloud. Um, so I was like, all right, I'm going to come up with something called uh, this Thunderstruck platform that lives in the cloud. I'm going to have this thing called a universal device SDK. It works across mm -hmm. devices and it's going to interface with us. But our promise to you is that we're going to route your data to whatever backend system you want it to. It could be another mm -hmm. IoT platform. It could be directly to analytics, uh, storage, cloud, on-prem, whatever. And and also, if you screw up and you made the wrong choice, you could just with a mouse click, we'll switch and redirect yeah. your data going to another location. So wow. that's part so of it. Not locked, you're not locked in anymore. That's what it no. comes down to. <laughs> no. I, I talk to customers all the time that talk, say, their data is being held hostage. Like there's IoT OEMs making a device and then they kind of have their own cloud and they created a closed mm -hmm. system. And I can't tell you how many customers say they're actually making me pay to get my data out <laughs> of yeah. their cloud, uh, things like that. And so a lot of it is about liberating data, making mm -hmm. it free to go wherever. Um, and then the next thing is security. If I'm going to have all these data streams from millions of devices flowing through my system, I can apply security policies to individual data streams as they flow through. And so right now I've got seven or eight different security policies. You know, the basic stuff, obviously enforcing encryption, authenticating it, checking source IPs to make sure it's not coming from some random country. It's coming from where the customer thinks it's coming from. 
um, a whole bunch of stuff like that. And, and more that you can layer on uh, to give you confidence that, you know, and then also to automatically either not da let data come through if it's violating security policies, to disable devices, to protect a customer's critical infrastructure. Uh, obviously, we there was the Mirai botnet and there's things like mm -hmm. that today. It'll protect customers from like a distributed denial of service attack from millions of IoT devices. So it's it's stuff like that, and uh, anyway, it's going pretty good. And so we're doing some yeah. customer we're doing some customer trials. You know, the code's kind of in the alpha beta stage ish right now. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun for sure. How how do you get something to be successful like it has been at Ericsson, right? Because I think that's what a lot of companies struggle with. Where entrepreneurship sounds cool, but it's not going to have anything to do with shareholder returns right away. So how do you yeah. get the right people bought in on that? Is there a piece of advice you'd have around that from your experience? Yes. You need to go read The Innovator's Dilemma. Mm. And that will and that will teach you why great companies fail. Great companies with great management teams who are lauded in the press for being awesome. And then they go out of business 10 years later and people scratch their head. So uh, anyway, it. it Innovator Slimmer is one of the best books ever about business and, and how disruptive technology, if you, where, it's where the word disrupt came from, actually. Yeah. Uh, it, and so lots of companies feel like they're doing all the right things. They're focused on near-term profits and all that stuff. The key thing is to remember is there's always barbarians at your gate and you mm -hmm. probably don't take them seriously enough. And they seem like their technology is a toy or it's nothing, you know, you're doing something important. And they're just nothing. They're nipping at your heels. And then guess what? 10 years later, they're eating your lunch. Mm -hmm. And anyway, the key thing, it's in this book too, is lots of companies kind of have kind of innovation programs. And, they, and they'll try to do their main business while doing some crazy thing on the side. But, mm -hmm. but it's always, it, they often fail because they're all yeah. blended in with the same thing. And so the key thing is you have to completely isolate that startup venture in an organization from the rest because the antibodies of the company will kill it. Um, yeah. And so it has to be protected from those antibodies that are saying, no, 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 that's not what we do today. But remember what you do today, isn't going to be what you do in the future necessarily. Right. Things yeah. change radically. And so, uh, and so Erickson one's a good example of being able to have mm -hmm. us completely isolated. I'm totally allowed to be super focused hundred percent on what I'm Love doing. Um, but yeah, that's great. Uh, but yeah, that's my answer. Read that book, uh, and and uh, it's a good start for sure. Yeah, I mean, isolating makes sense, right? Like you need to be confident that hey, we need to do things like this if we're going to evolve and survive. Because like you said, there are barbarians at the gate, and we've seen how Netflix. Uh, you talked about Blockbuster earlier. You see how Netflix completely flipped the world on its head that way. So yeah, love that answer. And with any book that gets mentioned on the show, it's, it'll be in the show notes over at manufacturinghalfthehour.com. We have covered a lot of ground today. I kind of thought we'd, <laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd come at what, once I learned about your, uh, your Navy experience this morning, I'm like, this is going to be a long one. This is going to be good. But, uh, as we wrap up, Rob, is there anything you wish I would have asked you that I haven't yet? Hmm. Well, let's see. Are you, Rob, are you going to save the planet or I don't know. Let's, uh, go, well, Rob, are you going to save the planet? That sounds like a, a dramatic so, way to wrap this up. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. After doing this, you know, you asked me what keeps me going or why I'm doing this. Um, mm -hmm. So since I know how to build this technology and design it, um, I actually have built a digital twin IoT platform. It's called Moab, like the town Moab in Utah, mm -hmm. you know, where all the yeah. arches are, like oh, right yeah. behind me. All right. Yeah. Um, I, anyway, I created something called the Moab Foundation, and basically it's to use IoT and digital twin technology to help us with sustainability. Uh, some people in your audience may have been familiar with the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals, poverty, water, climate, all those things, hunger. Um, anyway, as it turns out, aside from all the things that you and I do commercially with IoT, mm -hmm. It turns out IoT can be used for a lot of things that help society. Um, and the, and it, as it turns out, you don't need AI a lot of times. Some of the biggest problems in the world are solved by just moving the needle just a little bit. Um, it's not rocket science, uh, but people just need help. So uh, so anyway, so I built a, built a kind of a mini version of an IoT digital twin platform. Part of it is, part of it is just outreach. 
part of it is knowing what what are those 17 sustainable development goals. And, and it's really handy to have those because a lot of times you're like, well, I want to help the world, but I don't know where to start. If nothing else, it helps categorize things for you. Um, yeah. And so, and then you, you could probably think just in your own life and your business, like when you worked with Rockwell and stuff like that. Oh yeah. I saw where we used IOT with this water treatment plant with some industrial stuff we put there and I see the help there. You can start peeling back the onion and going, oh, okay, I'm remotely knowing. And then I'm deriving an insight and I'm taking an action. So I'm going to give away the software. Clearly, you're still going to need volunteer people to go help do that kind of stuff, right? Right. Uh, but mm -hmm. also part of it's an awareness thing. Um, so anyway, that's 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 kind of the behind the scenes, you know, nights and weekends kind of thing I'm doing. Uh, and so that's that's lots of fun for sure. Awesome stuff, Rob. It's been awesome having you on the show. I'll make sure to link is can can people find out about the Moab uh, Foundation now on yeah. the internet as well? Yeah, all it's right. Moab Moabfoundation.org. All right. Well, all of that will be linked up in the show notes today. And uh as we wrap up, first I want to say, Rob, thanks for jumping on the show. And uh then the last thing I want to say is I think this is how you make your exit. Uh this is Chris and Rob, and we are out. <laughs> I love it. We are out. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. All right. Hey, thanks for listening. That was fun. Good conversation. Rob is definitely someone I need to catch a beer with before a football game or otherwise at some point. And a lot of great stories, a lot of great references, things he brought up from his long, diverse experience. If you want to learn more, head to the show notes, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 63. I will have a link to the Innovator's Dilemma, the other stuff that Rob is up to, how to connect with him on social media. He's prominent on Twitter as well as LinkedIn. Highly recommend connecting with him there. So as always, show notes, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 63. Before we wrap up, I do want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Steam Chain. Steam Chain is the machine as a service company, and if you are looking for a way to pay by performance or get paid by performance, it's an excellent differentiator for equipment manufacturers that, quite frankly, are better than their competition and know they can deliver great results with the latest technology. It's also a great opportunity for end users to pay for equipment based on the output and performance you get from it. So a great collaboration tool for OEMs and end users, and quite frankly, a win-win across the board. You can learn more about them in episode five, where we interviewed their co-founder and CEO, Mike Kromicky, or just head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash steamchain. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. You can get there on your iPhone or on your desktop by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. It'll take you straight there, and it can be super quick. I've always said it doesn't need to be longer than just a couple sentences, and that five-star button is super easy to hit. Hope to see you there. And with that, thanks so much for sticking around. Stay innovative. Stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next time. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour, powered by the Industrial Network.